Well, last week I shared uh, with you about just, uh, it was Healthy Church Sunday and an annual checkup, and we got to see that great video that, uh, um, that Adam and Matt put together for us, and we looked Sunday morning at the first part and Sunday night at the second part, and then got a, our uh, budget presentation looking forward, and just thank you so much for coming you know, I asked, uh, pleaded with you to be here on Sunday night, and it was a great turnout, and I just thank you uh, for that. Today, uh, I want to keep the same theme and go, and go a step farther. If we said last week was like a health checkup, I mean, we, we looked at some things uh, leadership-wise, our pastors, our deacons, we evaluated spiritual goals last year, and we said there's, a, there's lots of things to be excited about um, you know, both the school and the church are going to finish on budget this year, and then some. And while we looked at that, we also said that there are some areas where we determined that we, we needed to work on, and there were, there were five of them. We said it was kind of like going to the doctor for your annual checkup. It's not cancer. It's not that you need surgery. But some of those areas could be like uh, high blood pressure. You know, when you go to the doctor and they say your bottom number is in the 90s, um, then, then they say, okay, you either need to make some changes or we're going to have to put you on blood pressure medicine or, or whatever it is. Well, before they ever give you a treatment plan, they, they do what's called patient education. Now, I'm drawing from my medical background, and some of you in here, nurses and physicians, understand exactly what I'm talking about. Once you give a diagnosis, then, then you have patient education. You begin to educate them, to help them to think right about their about their condition and their situation, and then that leads into a treatment plan. You don't want them just doing what the doctor says. You want them to understand why they need to do it. And so think today like patient education, and then we'll follow up probably next Sunday or after with, with the actual exercise plan or the, or, the, or the treatment plan. We said that there were some shepherding needs, there was the need to communicate better with one another, uh, connect better, activity is not connectivity, increase passion for evangelism, and serving together. Serving is people and not, and not programs. At any time that you preach something like that, you're, you're addressing needs that you see in, in the body. You're acknowledging that you see some of those needs. You, you then point everyone to the Word and Christ. And you also understand that that those issues are not church-wide, but they do affect the, the whole church, as you're going to see in, in 1 Corinthians 12 this morning. And I think you could clearly see this from, from the two main responses um, you know, that, that I got from, from the message. I mean, if you took that list of five things, I had people come to me and say, well, I don't feel any of those five things. I'm, I couldn't be happier I feel connected, feel communicated with, everything is great. And then I had other people, you just see the relief on their face, like, you know, somebody gets my need, and, and, and they're acknowledging it. And then you had other people who say, well, yes, connectivity, but, but no to communication, or yes to communication, but, but I feel very, very connected. And, and so when you do something like that, you just, you just understand that, that it's not blanket, and it's also not, not either, either or. I don't think it's any one group or, or person, or it's the source of the need. It's, it's really just, it's just life in a fallen world. It's, 
It's called church body life. And, and if you want proof of that, you just go back to Acts 6 and see very quickly after uh, the day of Pentecost, there are needs that represent themselves in the body of Christ. And read any New Testament letter. I mean, why are those New Testament letters written? Because people have needs and people are part of churches and churches have needs. And so you then apply the gospel uh, to it. It also reminds us to be sober and vigilant because our adversary does lurk about, doesn't he? Seeking whom he may devour. And Satan loves to take needs and divide God's people and sap their energy for the, for the gospel, for the testimony. Take them away from looking outward and get them looking inward. It's sometimes good to look inward. But if you're always looking inward and never looking outward, then, then your focus is, is off. So, so where do you go from, uh, from there? Some have needs, some may not have needs. How do you think rightly about about those things. Well, 1 Corinthians 12, I think you could think of it like patient education. When you look at 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12 instructs us on about three different levels. It, it talks about it from a God's perspective. You're going to see 1 Corinthians 12 what God's view of the body is and how God interacts with His church, including Timberlake. You're going to see 1 Corinthians 12 dealing with needs. It's going to look at it from a corporate standpoint. What does the whole body do? and How do you think about needs from a whole body standpoint? And then it's also going to lead us to think individually, individual members in that body. All three of those are going on in, in 1 Corinthians 12. 12. And you look through each of those lenses, and Paul will go back and forth between God's lens, corporate lens, and an individual lens. In keeping with our theme, whenever you do, if you'd summarize, we're going to look at all of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. I would say you can find five biology lessons on the church that will help us to develop a, an exercise plan. I mean, that's the first thing they tell you to do, right? Whenever you got high blood pressure, eat right and exercise. So there's five biology lessons here. And the first one is Christ has empowered His church. Number two, Christ has unified His church. Number three, Christ has diversified His church. Number four, Christ has structured His church. And number five, Christ rules over His church. Let's look at the first one. It's found in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, just to give you some context, chapter 11 through 14 all deals with issues of worship in the church. Paul has already covered the issue of men and women in worship. He deals with the roles of men and women. Then he deals with the issue of abuses in the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. All, both of those about worship. And now, he's going to deal with spiritual gifts in the church. He's going to deal with that chapter 12 through chapter 14. And he sets the stage here, turning from the Lord's Supper and turning from men and women in the church to spiritual enablements, or how Christ has empowered his church. Look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 12. It says, now concerning 
spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute or dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord, and there are a variety of effects, but the same God, who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, languages, to another interpretation of languages. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Now, you could stop right there because that's the introduction. And the rest of the chapter explains what Paul just said, illustrates what Paul just said, and points us to to Christ. First thing I want you to note, now we're under Christ has empowered His church. It's the topic of spiritual enablement. Now, notice in verse 1 that your Bible will say concerning spiritual and then gifts is going to be in italics. You notice that? It's because gifts is not in the original. There's one single word in the Greek. And it means, the word literally means that which pertains to the Spirit. Or spiritual enablements. That which pertains to the Spirit. Now Paul will later define for us that he's talking about gifts as we call it. And your Bible supplies that. But I think that you you really need to think through the lens of spiritual enablement, what, what comes from the Spirit, or that which is pertaining to the Spirit. Because when you think spiritual gift, the first thing that probably comes into your mind is, you know, what, what do I have? Which one? And you maybe go back to a test that you took. Not that anything's wrong with that. But I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying is the Spirit has enabled you. He's given you specific enablements. And that is for the church. Christ empowers His church. And He starts by reminding the Corinthians that in the past, they practiced spiritual enablements. They thought that they had spiritual things going on, things pertaining to the Spirit, whenever they were pagans. There was this ecstatic babble and all kinds of other things happening in in pagan worship. And He says... Realize you were led astray. You, you, didn't, you couldn't tell the difference between what was spiritual and what was unspiritual. You thought that you were in the spirit, capital, uh, uh, not capital S, little s, whenever you were following the pagans. So he tells them, the Holy Spirit has enabled you in Christ's church. You're believers now. But don't forget, and I want you to be ignorant about that. I want you to be instructed about that. But you need to remember that at one point you had it all messed up. I think there's three things that are clear if you look at verses 1 through 3, how he introduces this whole thing. The Spirit enables. You can be wrong or misled. I think that's what he's saying. You know when you were pagans in verse 2, you were led astray. And then in verse 3, he gives us this test 
to tell whether it's truly of the Holy Spirit or not. Jesus is Lord in spiritual gifting. Spirit enables. These are things pertaining to the the Spirit. And you should be encouraged by that. Christ, through the Spirit, has enabled His church for every spiritual work that is needed and necessary. And I hope you find encouragement in that statement. There is not a single need of a member. There's not a single issue in the church. There's not a minute task that God has not empowered His church to deal with. Very clear right here. There's nothing that you can't overcome because you've been able, enabled by God. Everything we need has already been supplied. But how do you know whether it's a spiritual enablement? Well, he says in verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And there's a, there's a, there's a contrast to that. No one speaking by the Spirit of God can say Jesus is accursed. So what does that mean? Well, there's all kinds of different interpretations. Paul is talking about spiritual utterances here because he says no one can say by the Spirit of God Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the, by the, by the Holy Spirit. And the Corinthians thought that, that what made something spiritual was the utterance or the act itself. And Paul is reminding them that it, the activity, what the activity does with Jesus is what makes the difference. I think that's what he's saying here at the end of chapter 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What Christian wouldn't say that? What Christian would say that Jesus is accursed? No one can say Jesus is Lord of the, of the church except by the Spirit. Jesus, the crucified one, is, by His resurrection, Lord over all the universe and especially the church. In spiritual enablement, if it comes from the Holy Spirit, will be Christ-exalting in church building. I think that's what you ought to walk away with. A spiritual enablement. The content and focus determines if it's from the Holy Spirit, not the act itself. It's not an ecstatic babble or an impression or a feeling. In church life, anything, any activity we do or word we say, position we take, need we express, must be submitted to this test. What makes something from the Spirit is not an impression or a feeling, no matter how strong the act or the utterance is. It's the content and who it exalts. Is it word-based and Christ-exalting? Does it exalt Jesus Christ as Lord? Does it proclaim what the written Word says about the living Word? And as you walk forward, you ask yourself the question, anything that you do in the church... Am I thinking biblically about this? Am I being led away by my own ideas? Am I focused on Christ and His church? Am I saying Jesus is Lord? Is Jesus Lord over what I'm doing? Is Jesus Lord over what I'm saying? Christ has empowered His church. And whatever He's empowered His church with will point to Jesus Christ as Lord and will exalt Him in the midst of His assembly. Let me give you number two. Christ has unified His church. Look at verse 4. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. I want you to pay close attention here because Paul sets up the next two points in these verses that follow. 
verses 4 through 11. He's going to set up the next two points, and then he's going to, he's going to take us through 12 through 27 to explain. Now, now, what should you walk away with with verses 4 through 6? Look at verse 4. Now, the variety is, now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. I would underline the Spirit. Now, watch this. There are a variety of ministries, but the same Lord, i.e., the Lord Jesus. There are a variety of effects, but the same God, i.e., God the Father, who works all things in all persons. So, the key word there is same and the Trinity, the same Spirit, same Lord, same God. Now look at verse 7 through 11. Here's the contrast. But, key word here is to each one, to each person, to each one is given. Look at verse 8. For to one is given, to another, to another in verse 9, to another in verse 10, multiple times in every verse. Key word is to each one or to the other. And what do you get when you put those two things together? There is one God in three persons. So there is one body with many members. The church is patterned after the Godhead, is what Paul is saying here. As there's perfect oneness in the Trinity and perfect unity, there is also personhood and purpose and roles. And the same thing happens in the church. Each has a part in redemption, but they're one and equal, right? Verses 4 through 6. Same Spirit, same Lord, same God. The Father plans your salvation, the Son accomplished your salvation, and the Spirit applied your salvation. Just as there is one God and three persons with distinct purposes and distinct roles, although they're the same God, the church too is one body in Christ, but, but each member has a different enablement. Each member has a different position and different role, and you can't separate the ideas. All right, this is quotable. If you haven't been paying attention, pay attention now, all right? The church of Jesus Christ is not uniform. It is unified. The church of Jesus Christ is not uniform. It is unified. One of the beauties of the gospel is that we're not uniform, but that we are unified because of Christ. We can be from different ethnic, social, or other backgrounds, and we're unified in the work of Christ. We joke about me being from West Virginia. We joke about Pastor Brody from being, being from New York. We, voc- we joke about being from different time periods. The Great Depression or the Great Generation or whatever generation they call themselves today. And yet, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And what binds us here this morning is the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we lose our distinctions or that distinctions are bad. It it means that all those distinctions are swallowed up by the bigger purpose of the gospel. They submit to the gospel, which unifies us. Think about in heaven. What will heaven be like? Well, the Bible gives us a number of things. The picture that we quote about in heaven, in heaven there will be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. What a beautiful thing. God is going to save people all over this planet. But that verse doesn't say they'll look the same or be the same. In fact, that verse says that people will be in heaven from every tongue, tribe, and nation. All of those different people 
will be gathered, though, around the same throne, worshiping the same Lamb who died for all of them. And yet, they'll be from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people, regardless of their background or their age or, or otherwise. And Paul is pointing the Corinthians to the fact that, that our worship here looks like heaven. We're practicing for heaven. How well are we doing? Do we want to be uniform? Or do we want to be unified? How easy is it to find fellowship with people that think exactly like you? How hard is it to find fellowship with people who don't think exactly like you? Well, it depends on what your rule is. If your rule is the Word and the Gospel, then it's very easy. I can go any place on the planet, China, Nepal, Burundi, wherever else, and find believers and have instant fellowship with them. I may be really uncomfortable whenever they bring me food and set before me things that I've never laid eyes on before or otherwise. But what unifies me is not their food or the way they dress or the way they look or the way they sing or the way that they conduct church or whether they pass a plate or whether they don't pass a plate. What unifies me is that these are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ and we both have trusted in His finished work. And Paul is saying in the Godhead, just as you're unified in the Godhead and yet there are distinctions in the Godhead, the church is, is the same. It's why one of the greatest targets of Satan is unity or the oneness of the church. Because division actually attacks the saving work of Christ. What do I mean by that? By the cross... Ephesians says that Jesus tore down the dividing wall and opened salvation up to all who will trust in His name. In the cross, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. In the cross, there's neither slave nor free. In the cross, there's neither male nor female. But that doesn't mean that a person doesn't have a Jewish background or a Gentile background. And we saw that in Acts 6. There were Hebrews and Hellenists. It doesn't mean that, you, that everybody has the exact same position in life or that there's no distinction in roles between men and women. But the cross is what made it possible to be unified. And our only standing before God is Christ. And so to be divided means to stand on another ground other than Christ. It means to be unified by standing on a ground other than the cross. And if you're not standing on the ground of the cross together, then that attacks the work of Christ because that's what God intended to unify us. Every tongue, tribe, and nation is gathered around the cross, even though they're different, but they're unified in the cross. So division, actually, Satan's ultimate target is to attack the finished work of Christ or what the finished work of Christ was to bring together. We've talked about this before. But who other could, than Jesus could bring Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot together as disciples? You, we talked last week about Hebrews and Hellenists, that they come from different backgrounds, but they're both Jews, but then you add Gentiles into the mix. Who other than Jesus Christ and the gospel could bring Hebrews and Hellenists and Gentiles together? And they'd be unified, although they'd be very different. And so when we look at the church, we think, through dealing with needs, we must think Christ and one body. Christ is not divided and neither is His, is his church. Let me give you number three. 
show you number three, I should say. I've already given it to you. Christ has diversified His church. He's unified His church. And the unity and the diversity is found even in the Godhead. And the church today is to mimic what will be like in heaven where we're all there together. He said last week, if you don't enjoy Jesus, you're not going to enjoy heaven. And if you don't enjoy one another, you're not going to enjoy heaven because both will be there. Christ has diversified His church. That's what He's talking about in verses 7 through 11. So verses 4 through 6, there's the same Spirit, same Lord, same God. There's the unity. But to each one, here's the diversity, is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom, to another, to another, to another. And He has diversified His church. Verses 14 through 18 is His first argument about unity. And verses 20 through 27 is His second argument. Now, I can see this plain because I've studied the chapter, and you might not, so just jot down these markers and go back and see it. It really is beautiful whenever you see how Paul puts it all together. Think of verses 1 through 3 as the introduction. He's talking about spiritual enablements. Christ has empowered His church. Think about verses 4 through 6 about the unity focusing on the Godhead. Think about verses 7 through 11, how there's diversity in the church. And then think of verses 14 through 18 as an explanation about unity, an illustration about unity, and verses 20 through 27 as an argument for variety or diversity. Now, I, I tried to find a different word. I'm saying variety because diversity, diversity is what the word that they say today, that you need to have diversity in everything, Right? So I hate the word because the culture has hijacked it. So think variety if you don't like diversity. Diversity training. Think variety training in the church, all right? The church is one body, but many members. Verses 14 through 18 says the body is not only one, but many. Look at verse 14. Four, here's your explanation. For the body is not one member, but many. Now look at verse 20. But now there are many members, but one body. You see how he flips the argument around? Verses 14 through 18 is the argument about there is... Body is not only one, but many. In verse 20, he starts, the body is not only many, but one. And all of that's rooted in the Godhead. And all of that is rooted in the fact that the church ought to mimic its, its master. That there is unity in the Trinity, and yet there's variety, personhood, purpose. We are one body. We're not one member. We are many members in one body. So you have to think our church, and you have to think where do I individually fit into that. Now I want you to notice how the argument goes. Look at verse 14. The body is not one member, but many. Now watch what the foot says. The foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body. Notice it's I. I am not part because I am limited. I'm not part 
of the whole. I'm not part of the body because I individually am limited. Now watch the second argument in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now notice the first one is is about I. I am not part of the body because I am not a hand. And the second argument is the eye cannot say to another member, to another hand, I have no need of you. You see the difference there? The foot says I'm not part because I'm limited, because I'm just a foot. And Paul says that's wrong. And the second argument, the eye says you are not needed because I am gifted. And you're wrong. God has purposely gifted and purposely limited members in His body so that when those purposely gifted and purposely limited individuals come together in the body of Christ, the body is complete. There are no spiritual lone rangers. There's no Christianity apart from the local church. There is no sanctification or growth in the church apart from your brothers and sisters that are sitting beside you. And you can't say to yourself, I have no part here in this church because I just have X gift or X limitation. And you can't say to somebody else, you have no part here because I am gifted in this way and you are not. You see that? You see that in the argument? You were never supposed to be all things or completely empowered. But every one of you are supposed to be something. Isn't that beautiful? You're never supposed to be all things, but every one of you is supposed to be something in the body of Christ. He's gifted us as feet or hands or eyes. Each of those has specific enablements. And He's done that so you can serve others. Your gift is not for you. Your gift is for other people. And He's also limited you so you would need other people. Don't you just hate to be in need. I think one of the areas that I struggle the most with in sanctification is weak, being weak. I don't know whether it's, I don't like to look bad, I don't know whether it's pride, I don't know whether it's being a man, I don't know what it is. But I don't like to be weak, and I don't like to have needs. But you know what? I am weak, and I have needs on a regular basis. Now why does God do that to me and do that to you? I mean, You're a child of the King. You're spiritually empowered. The Holy Spirit enables you. Why doesn't He just give us, fix all the issues so we never have a need? Well, you know the answer to that. Because if you never had a need, then you would never have a need for another person in the body. And if you never had a need, then you would never have a need for God, right? What happens to the Israelites whenever they were fat, dumb, and happy? Like we talked about, we've been the last eight years. It's easy to forget God, right? It's easy not to depend upon God. So what does God do? He makes you weak, or He points out your weaknesses that you already have. When you think you're flying solo, then the Lord brings some turbulence in your life. So you will need, you realize you need the co-pilot, and you need everybody else on the plane sometimes. He's gifted so we can serve, and He's limited so He would need. Some are eyes, some are hands. Eyes have abilities and limitations, so do other body parts. The eyes need the hands. The hands need the eyes. The body needs both to function properly. And just as division 
detracts from the unifying work of Christ in the gospel, sameness. Everybody trying to be an eye. Everybody trying to be a foot. Sameness, or wanting to be an eye if you're a foot. Sameness blurs the image of the Godhead. There is unity in the Godhead. It's one God. Hero Israel. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. And yet there's also distinction. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all are equal. And all have a role in salvation. And so when you say, I don't have need of someone else, or I have no need, I have no gift that, that I can use in, in a body, I'm going to live on my own, you are actually falling to the trap of blurring the beauty of the Godhead. Because the Godhead is to be put on display in His church. And He specifically designed it this way. We have to think this way and imitate the Trinity. Jesus was fully God and submitted to the Father. The Spirit makes much of Christ, not Himself. The Father planned redemption, but Christ becomes the centerpiece in heaven. It's not the Father. So what does that look like? Well, I think Paul gives us some real practical application. Look at verse 24. I'm sorry, verse 25 so that there be no division in the body, but that members may have the same care one for another. Tells you what, what he's trying to avoid and why God designed it that way, so we would have care for one another. And what does that look like? Verse 26, if, six, if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. And if one member is honored or rejoices, all members rejoice with that member. That's why I say, even if you don't feel the needs, even if you don't feel a need for communication or connectivity or whatever else it is, this verse says it matters to the whole church because at least one person in the church feels that way. And if you feel that way, this verse would say don't let that dominate and be the ruling issue over anything that's happening. You submit that to to other members in the church. There's suffering and then there's rejoicing. And we weep with those and we rejoice with, with, with others. Christ has empowered His church. He's unified His church. He's diversified His church. And He's structured His church. That's what He says here in verse 27. Here's like a conclusive statement. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Make sure we get the point. There is a body, and that body is made up of members. And you're Christ's body. And you are also individual members with spiritual empowerment. You're unified and you're diversified. But now watch what he does. Christ has also structured his church. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then... Miracles and gifts of healings and helps and administrations in various tongues. Now look back, if you would, at verse 7. What, look at the difference in these lists. This is another list that Paul gives in the same chapter. But look at verse 7. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's why spiritual gifts are given. Now he's going to give a list of spiritual enablements. To one, he's given a word of wisdom. To another, a word of knowledge. 
to another, faith. To another, gifts of healing. To another, effecting of miracles. To another, prophecy. Those are specific spiritual enablements. In this list, he adds people to those spiritual enablements. And God, in verse 28, has appointed in the church first apostles. Well, you have to be spirit, you have to have a spiritual enablement to be apostle. But an apostle is a person. Second prophets. You have to have the gift of prophecy to be a prophet. That's an individual. And then teachers. You have to have the gift of teaching to be a teacher, but that's an individual, and on and on. And with all the talk of unity and variety, God doesn't want us to miss that He's also given an order to things in His church. Just as there's roles in the Godhead, just as there's beauty in the oneness of the Godhead, just as there's beauty in the, in the diversity or the variety of the Godhead, there's also roles in the Godhead. And there's roles in the church. These spiritual enablements are now presented accompanied with people. And the second list is a list of positions. God doesn't just send enablements. He enables you. And He enables you. And He enables you. And He enables you to serve the body. And so he's given a list here. This is not an all-inclusive list. Paul's point is not to list everything there. It's not to say, well, I'm going to give you my job, my task right now is to give every spiritual gift that is known to man. Or known to God, I should say. His point is that people and positions come together and these are both spiritual enablements. He gave apostles and then prophets. Ephesians 2 tells us that they laid the foundation of the church. The apostles and prophets received revelation from God, authenticated that revelation by sign gifts, and they laid the foundation of the church, and that's done. And then Ephesians tells us who took over from there. Evangelists and pastors and teachers that build on that foundation and that their task is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so the body might edify itself. He says the same thing here, just in a different way. They build on that foundation. So what does that mean in relation to our health checkup? Not only are we to think individually and that everyone matters, and we are to think of the church corporately, Jesus has given a divine structure, spiritual empowerment, roles, leaders to address the needs, and you operate within that and look to them and follow as they follow Christ. Jesus has designed the church. Think of the way Jesus defines this church. Here it's a body and members. Pretty, pretty beautiful, isn't it? Um, he doesn't say it's like the Roman government. doesn't say it's like any government. He says it's a body and members. He also describes it as a husband and a bride. He also describes it as shepherd and sheep. I would say that fits here. They're shepherd and they're sheep. Now, in one sense, everyone in the body, whether you're a pastor teacher, you have the gift of teaching, or whether you're a deacon, or whether you're someone with administration, or whatever else it is, whatever role you serve in the church, in one sense, all you are is a believer just trying to live out the gospel and please God. There's not some clergy and laity there. I am a Christian believer with the same struggles 
and the same desires and the same everything that you have. Same weaknesses, same failures. But that doesn't mean that there's no role. And so in another sense, there is gifting and there's authority and there's accountability and there's activity. I mean, we're not just a 500-pound marshmallow. We're a blob. There's structure given to things. There's responsibility and gifts to serve the body. And yet in all of that, you can rest in the fact that Christ rules over His church and nothing can befall the church outside of His control. Let me give you number five. Christ rules over His church. If you would want an analogy for this idea of roles, how He structured His church, shepherd and sheep, I would say this last one would be the analogy that the church has a master and we're the servant. Right? Jesus is the master. And we are His servants. While Paul's writing to help us see in spiritual empowerment, unity, and variety where roles fit in, he's also emphasized over and over that Christ rules over His church. And ultimately, while we have individual needs and corporate response to those needs and shepherds and sheep, the final analogy gives us the ruling principle. So think about church life. The church has a master, and we're the master's servants. Watch how he's emphasized that Christ rules over his church over and over. Look back, if you would, at verse 11. But to one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Just as he, bulamai. Look at verse 18. But God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. God distributes as He wills. God places as He desires. Look at verse 24. All these are concluding statements to Paul's many arguments as he walks through this chapter. Look at verse 24. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, have no need of covering. He's using a body example. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. God has composed the body. I mean, these are definitive statements about God and what He does and how He rules over His church. Look at verse 26. Transition, if one member suffers, all members suffer. Look at verse 27. Now you're Christ's body and individual members of it. Look at verse 28. And God has appointed in the church. First, and he gives the list. God distributes. God places. God composes. God appoints. You couldn't be more abundantly clear. And this principle teaches us that we are not the ruling factor in the church, right? Our needs are not the ruling factor. The felt needs of lost humanity is not the ultimate. Oh, they're important. Your needs are important. My needs are important. But that's not the ultimate. The ultimate is Christ and His glory. The ultimate is His gospel and His church. My leadership is not. Christ is. And He's at work among us, even in the needs. 
And whatever we do, whatever we think, however we pose changes, all must fit into the paradigm that there's a master and he has a plan for his church and he is good and knows best and his word is the source to inform us. And the way you focus on that is where Paul transitions next. Where does that lead him? You seek gifts, seek positions, seek needs, seek limitations. Verse 31. After he gets done with this whole thing about Christ and His church, but earnestly desire greater gifts and I'll still show you a more excellent way. And then 1 Corinthians 13 that we all call the love chapter. How do you make Christ the ruling principle? How do you worry about Him more than your own needs or the needs of others or or structure or whatever? You fill your heart with a love for God. And when love for God reigns in your heart, then everything else lines up in place, doesn't it? Love covers a multitude of sins, doesn't it? And all the love that God had for us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Would you bow your heads? Time does not permit, but if you read chapter 13... Paul says, don't seek any of those things that he just went over. He wants to educate you about them. What do you seek? You seek love. If we love God, then we'll love others. When we love others, needs will be met. No offenses will dominate. It will all be about Christ and His glory. And that will be one of the most beautiful things about heaven. I don't know your heart today. Maybe you're here and you say, I don't know if I love God or not. Do you know the Bible says that's not the question to ask? The Bible doesn't point you to how much you love God. The Bible says you don't love God. The Bible points you to how much He loved you. You love Him because... He first loved you. We love Him because He first loved us. So look to Christ. It was not your love for God, your goodness, that had anything to do with Christ condescending from His throne and coming. It had everything to do with God's love for you. It initiated a reconciliation. He came so that you might have life. And I proclaim to you today, if you will come to Him and acknowledge and lay down what you already know, your weaknesses and sins, He will show you mercy. You put your trust in Him. In His work, He will reconcile you to the Father. And then you can enjoy the blessings of His church, and His Spirit, and everything else that follows. Father, as we come before You, we thank You for this truth. We thank You for 1 Corinthians 12. We thank You that it's relevant. It's no different 
Because human beings are no different. And yet you never change and your gospel never changes and it reaches to the uttermost. Father, I pray for anyone here today that doesn't know the love of their Heavenly Father on Father's Day. That they would see that love in the cross and today that they would repent and believe. That they'd stop focusing on what they have done or haven't done and they would focus on what Jesus accomplished. He said, it is finished. And that they'll be made new creatures in Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, to practice here what heaven will be like. That we're unified and yet diverse. We've been empowered by you, and yet we are your servants, and you are our master. May Jesus be exalted in our midst, in Jesus' name. Amen.